This is episode 214 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons can unlock detailed show notes for each one of our episodes, which includes coordinating visual content we can't share on the audio, like woodcuts, portraits, samples of coins and other artifacts from the period that we share with you on the podcast. You can see all of that in the detailed show notes when you sign up to be a patron for just $5 a month. Check out all of these benefits and sign up today at Patreon dot com slash that Shakespeare life. Barnaby Gooch recorded his preference for Banbridge cheese over that from Suffolk, Essex and Kent, but also quoted a contemporary proverb saying, I never saw a Banbridge cheese thick enough, but I've seen Essex cheese quick enough. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In William Shakespeare's play, Merry Wives of Windsor, Bardolph declares, quote, you Banbury cheese, end quote. Now, he means this as an insult. But the reason the line is an insult is because for the life of William Shakespeare, Banbury, England, was famous for making a particular kind of cheese that was thinner on the rind than other cheeses typical of the period. Therefore, calling someone a Banbury cheese was akin to calling them a string bean or saying that they were too thin. It works especially well as a joke for Shakespeare in the play because the character Bardolph is insulting is named, as you might expect, Slender. The joke is a highly contemporary reference by Shakespeare, and in order to better understand the history of Banbury, England, and their famous cheese, we have invited the chair of the Banbury Historical Society, Helen Ford, to visit with us today and explain what made Banbury cheese so unique for Shakespeare's lifetime. Helen Ford is a history graduate and archivist, now retired, having worked in local, private, and national archives during her career. At the latter, the National Archives, she was the head of what is now called Collections Care and wrote a book entitled Preservation Management. Helen has also written numerous articles on archives and local history. She has worked internationally for UNESCO and traveled to many countries teaching local history to adults in both Nottingham and London universities, as well as postgraduate archive students. Since retiring, Helen has worked extensively with museums, notably the Postal Museum in London, and she is now a trustee at the local Banbury Museum and Gallery. Helen is the chair of the Banbury Historical Society and editor of its annual journal, Cake and Cockhorse. Hello, Helen. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How is the width of a cheese rind determined during the production process? Was the Banbury cheese intentionally thin or was there some kind of mistake when it was being made that turned it into this thin cheese we know it as? Well, it's hard to say. The 15th century recipe for Banbury cheese starts, take a thin cheese vat, which means a mold, and hot milk as it comes from the cow. And that's the only clue we have about about making this particular cheese in the thin form but it was acknowledged by several writers as well as Shakespeare. The rind is nothing more than a part of the cheese which has had more exposure to air than the interior. And some people pair it away before eating the softer interior, but it can be quite tasty. 
It's a different matter, of course, when the when the cheese has a covering, sometimes a, a loosely woven cloth, i.e. cheesecloth, was used in England for some cheeses like cheddar and that sort of thing, other hard cheeses. But And, of course, the Dutch cover their cheese, their Edam and Gouda cheeses in wax. At the end of the 16th century, Barnaby Googe recorded his preference for Banbury cheese over that from Suffolk, Essex and Kent, but also quoted a contemporary proverb saying, I never saw a Banbury cheese thick enough, but I've seen Essex cheese quick enough. (laughs) In her article for the Banbury Historical Society about Banbury cheese, Helen writes that, quote, in 1531, William Tresham of Banbury wrote to Cromwell, thanking him for his good treatment of his brother-in-law, who was sending him a small gift, which included half a dozen Banbury cheeses, end quote. Helen, what made Banbury cheese special enough that it was given as a gift in this way? I wish I knew. <laughs> um, we have tantalizingly a few references to Banbury cheese, and at least one 16th century writer, Thomas Horten, clearly didn't think that Banbury cheese was up to much, although he, sent, he also sent them to friends. He wrote, I send two couple of our country cheese, being one of the best pleasures that our barren soil will yield to us to bestow of our friends. These Banbury cheeses show what a thin and hard hungry country I dwell in, the cheese may well be resembled to our riches, as the pairing of the cheese being cut away on both sides, there is little left behind. Nevertheless, he sent them, and perhaps he was being politely diffident about the value of his gift. I really don't know. We, as we don't have a Banbury cheese, we can't, we can't do anything other than conjecture. Helen identifies the cost of Banbury cheese in her article when she relays that one man tried to use Banbury cheese to secure a bribe, writing, quote, two years later, so this would be in 1533, Nicholas Glossop, who wrote, quote, I send you 12 Banbury cheeses, half hard, half soft, and wish that they were worth 20 thousand pounds. Helen, 20,000 pounds is a substantial amount of money in today's currency, but allowing for inflation and tracking backwards, those cheeses are being referenced at close to $18 million. And that's just astounding to me. What on earth made the cheeses this kind of valuable? Is this a joke or is he actually saying the cheeses were worth this much? No, no, I'm sure they weren't worth that amount. I think he merely meant that he wished that they were worth that amount, as it would have been enormous and perhaps more successful bribe if, if they had been. But it's, it's, a, it's wishful thinking in the best of terms. The little information that we have on the value of cheese in the Banbury area comes from the inventories of goods in the houses of those who died. It's really the only information one has. In 1585, which is not that long after, Catherine Doyley had 80 cheeses worth £2.13 shillings and fourpence in her cheese chamber, which is be worth just under about $700 today. A few years later, John Green had 50 hard cheeses, 80 soft cheeses and salt butter appraised at a value of £2.04, shillings, which would be worth about something around, around $600, I guess. And 50 years later, 150 cheeses were appraised at £5, which would be approximately $645 for nearly double the number of cheeses. So the value was going down, apparently. But of course, there's no way of knowing what the quality of the cheeses were. So it's really very difficult to make any comparisons. But it certainly doesn't go anywhere near the (laughs) the £20,000. 
So we don't hold out much hope for how well his bribe turned out in that instance. Right? I, I, there's no in, there's no information about that at all. But it's quite interesting because it's, it's not the only person. He's not the only person who actually tried to bribe officials with cheese. There are 16th century references in letters and various documents relating the flavor of Banbury cheese, with several people noting they prefer Banbury cheese to the cheeses made in other counties of England, including Suffolk and Essex. Helen, were there particular plants or grasses or perhaps even a particular kind of cow that they were using in Banbury, but not in other places that might have contributed to Banbury cheese having a singular flavor? I'm not aware of any particular difference in the soil in the area, which, of course, is what would make a difference in the flavour, or of any different animals that graze in the Banbury, in, in the same area, in the Banbury, the area around Banbury. The geology is largely comprised of, of lower and upper lias, which is hard limestone, which is well suited to grassland and therefore for cattle, but it's not, it's not unusual. Um, the area was also well supplied with springs and wells, so the grass grew abundantly and was particularly good for feeding the cows in the later summer, when it was not as rich as in the spring. The resulting milk in the late summer was rich in casein, which is phosphoprotein, which is a major component of cheese. The area was a prosperous farming region, with the town situated at the junction of important routes, which probably accounts for some of the fame which the cheese enjoyed. It was easy to get through. So it's a popular destination. So some of its some of its yeah. fame came from just people were going through there a lot to to find this. That I, makes I, sense. I guess so. But there was a, there was a, there was a regular cheese market held in Banbury together with other other produce that was regularly brought in. It was well known for cheese. So who knows? It, it was it was probably the regional area, the best regional point for buying cheese. Helen's article cites a number of wills and household inventories that include cheeses among their items of note. Helen, was it common for food items to be listed on a household inventory, or is the inclusion of cheese an indication that the cheeses were worth being inventoried, like they had a particular value? I was, I'm wondering if cheese was collected something like wine might be collected for today, storage of a kind of wealth as much as it was for consumption? Well, the rules about what was and was not included on, in inventories were not always followed. I don't think they were very easily available, to be honest. Uh, local appraisers may well have been ignorant of what was required by the church, because it was the church authorities who were asking for the information about the wealth of the deceased. And they may well have gone by local custom. In some places, they would have appraised one thing, and then perhaps in another place, they might have appraised something else. In principle, foodstuffs were not included, though cheese seems to be an exception in various parts of the country, not only the area around Banbury. Possibly it was due to the necessity to store it for some time before it was ready to eat. But even so, it was not regularly recorded. And there were all sorts of people who clearly have cheese-making equipment in their houses, um, but there's no sign of the cheese being mentioned. And it has, has been suggested that it was such a ubiquitous commodity that it was ignored as just being too common to mention. And I think there are other things like this, which are most houses had. And um, if, if everybody had it, then it was probably of less value. It's hard to know what the poor ate as they rarely left any goods behind them. But it's clear that even they ate cheese, possibly the only protein that they could afford. And it seems unlikely that the cheese was collected as a storage of wealth. Uh, although, as we've seen, uh, some of it is quite is quite valuable. 
because it would ultimately deteriorate if it was kept too long. Its main value was in the short-term storage of protein um, from the summer, uh, which would last uh, uh, would last into the winter when the actual getting getting food and particularly protein was was difficult. I think that was the main purpose of it. And it was too valuable in this context to be kept for any longer than was strictly necessary for the cheese to be mature. Now, you referenced earlier a recipe for Banbury cheese that is kind of the foundation of how we know the Banbury cheese was made. But I'm wondering if there are any other recipes for Banbury cheese or if anyone has tried to recreate the original Banbury cheese. The only recipe that I'm aware of is the 15th century one, which uh, I quoted shortly at the beginning. That one is in the British Library uh, amongst the Sloan manuscripts. And the method it cites is as follows. Take a thin cheese fat and hot milk as it comes from the cow and run it forth withal in summertime and knead your curds but once and knead them not too small, but break them once with your hands. And in summertime, salt the curds nothing but let the cheese lie three days unsalted, and then salt them. And lay one upon another, but not too much salt, and so shall they gather butter. And in wintertime, in likewise, but then heat your milk, and salt your curds, for then it will gather butter of itself. Take the warm whey of the same milk, and let it stand a day or two, till it have a cream, and it shall make as good butter as any other. And that's it. (laughs) Uh, It strikes me that these are instructions for someone who's familiar with making cheese, as it isn't at all specific about quantities or method, it's it's a, it's a sort of description, if anything else. Um, many years ago, I understand that someone in the Banbury Historical Society did try the recipe, and I believe that the resulting cheese was eaten at one of the dinners, um, but I don't know how good it tasted. Well, it's fantastic to know that it can be recreated, but I, I agree with you about the recipe. It makes a lot of assumptions about what you already know, like the equipment you should have in place and being able to strain it. It, it doesn't detail all that out. So I think, yes, so, certainly a lot of people must have been doing this for them to think you already knew how to make it. I think that's right. I do wonder about it being hard versus soft. One of our earlier references indicated that, you know, he's the, the man sent half hard cheeses and half soft cheeses, but they were both Banbury cheeses. So I was wondering if you could tell us about what makes them different. Were there hard Banbury cheeses, soft Banbury cheeses, and were they always round in a, you know, a disc or would they have been made in other shapes? Well, it's clear from the references we have that, that there were both soft and hard cheeses, and they would have been made at different times in the year. Some of the soft cheese would, be, would have been made uh, to be eaten almost immediately. But um, the hard cheese, obviously, is, is the one that would be kept uh, for the winter. The, given the numbers of different cheeses to be found in England at, that, at this time, it's not surprising that it was made in a different way according to the season and also probably in relation to the quantity of milk uh, that was available. And it's tempting to suggest, but I have absolutely no evidence for this, that there might well have been uh, uh, cheese made from sheep's milk in the area too, because there were a great many sheep around here. But there's no local evidence at all. Uh, I've never come across any reference to sheep's milk being used. But again, they did in other parts of the country, so it's perfectly possible. The round shape was due to the moulds into which the curds were poured, and you can get the, these today. I mean, they're 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 available uh, for those who from those who sell cheese equipment. They had holes. They were circular uh, with holes all round the sides, 
So the whey, which is the, the sort of watery, watery material, would run out when the curds were pressed down and you get quite a considerable amount of whey from it. And that is, in fact, is what the recipe that I've just quoted was talking about when it meant you could, when it suggested that you could still make butter from the whey, which in effect is the water content of the, from the milk uh, without the fat. A round sheep was the easiest to, to store. And large cheeses are actually often referred to as wheels. And uh, some of them were very large indeed, uh, which in, obviously indicates their shape. Uh, there was a, a reference uh, in, in Nottingham to a, a, a local custom whereby they, um, on a particular day, they rolled cheeses down a hill. And on at least one occasion, somebody was, was killed as a result. So <laughs> oh, that gives an indication, indication of the size. I mean, as circular cheeses were much were much easier to move, even if they weren't that large. And of course, uh, any a cheese with corners, so to speak, was more prone to damage. So it made sense all round to have them circular. Helen's article for the Banbury Historical Society is a great place to begin when investigating the history of Banbury cheese. And we will link you over to that article in the show notes for today's episode. Helen, in addition to your article, what are some books or resources you could recommend we use to learn more, not just about Banbury cheese, but about the region of Banbury in general for Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, I think probably the, the standard reference is the Victoria County History for Oxfordshire, which actually is, is one of the, the books that I recommended for uh, you to put on the website. The Victoria County History is an enormously detailed county history of um, in, if not all, quite all the counties of England. And as its name it, uh, suggests, it was started in the reign of Queen Victoria. They thought it was going to be, sort, going to be all done and dusted by, in 20 years. This was it started in 1897 and it hasn't finished yet. So um, you can see there's a phenomenal amount of work. But the volume 10, which which includes the entry for Banbury itself, is really the one to, to go and look at if you if you want a, a fully detailed history, which covers well from from the very as it were the very beginning right to right to up up to the well 1950 right? the Journal of the Banbury Historical Society which is called Cake and Cock Horse because Banbury Cake is, is well known and the Cock Horse comes into the, into the nursery rhyme, is again available on the website, which you've got, I think, on, on, on your website. So I think, I think those are the two best ones. Obviously, there are other, other books and articles which, which relate to Banbury, including a very good one on Victorian Banbury, but that's not what we're talking about at the moment. We will link to these resources in the show notes for today's episode. And for those of you in the U.S. who may not be familiar with the nursery rhyme Helen is referencing there, we'll link you to the nursery rhyme as well. So you can explore that because it's it's fun to check out. Now, Helen, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, if you're probably referring to the the, the show Desert Island Discs, it is um, it is a it is a complimentary nod to Desert Island Discs. Yes, <laughs> they're usually quite quite kind about allowing collected works uh, when if, if to their their participants. And I'd go for the collected works of Anthony Trollope because I'm a fast reader. So that together with the Bible and Shakespeare, I think it would all keep me going for quite some time. And it's a different period. It's, it, they're, they're about Victorian England. So I'd, be, I'd have a good, a, a good spread of information. I think that's a great choice for your desert island. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? 
Well, I'm currently helping a friend who's identified a previously unknown mill in a nearby village of Adderbury, which dates from the 16th century, but for which we've only actually found one reference, uh, as well as a very small indication on a map, on a, on, a, on a contemporary map. And I went last week to the National Archives in just outside London in Kew and looked up at the, the document for where the reference appears. It was a plea from three men of the village to the Lord Chancellor of England, which is quite something to do, really, to summon the builder of the new mill to the Chancery Court to answer why he was forcing them to use it at great expense, at their great expense, because previously they'd used the old mill gratis and they'd they'd found that perfectly satisfactory. (laughs) Sadly, that's the only reference we've got, and no further documents have been found to indicate the outcome of of the court case, if indeed it ever came to court. This remains rather tantalising, and, and we shall go on looking. Well, that sounds like a great project to be exploring. We'll look forward to seeing what comes from that. Helen Ford, thank you so much for being here and walking us through the history of Banbury cheese and giving us this introduction to Banbury England. I appreciate your time today. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you. If you liked our show today, please leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform. This lets other listeners know what you thought about the show, and it helps them find where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Our show notes for today's episode contain more information on the resources Helen mentions, including links to all of the details, like the journal that she suggested, Helen's article in particular, as well as the Banbury Historical Society, and more. If you're interested in exploring Banbury cheese, the show notes are a great place to start. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 214. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP214. If you enjoyed our episode today, please consider helping us make more shows just like this one by signing up to support our work here at That Shakespeare Life by being our patron. If you enjoy the history you learn about, patrons get to go even further behind the scenes into the history we explore with detailed show notes. You get to unlock not just the show notes for today's episode, but for all of our detailed show notes site-wide at castycash.com. You can unlock visuals like woodcuts, portraits, museum artifacts, and all of the visual content that we just can't share here on the audio. We pack that into the detailed show notes and give it to you, our patrons, to say thank you for helping us explore the life of William Shakespeare with episodes just like this one. If that sounds exciting to you, then learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.